Uh, will you uh, remain standing with me as I read today's uh, scripture? It comes from Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 through 21. And it says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to, the, to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with them. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I cross this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are, the, whose are these ahead of me? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You, sh you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this morning. Would you speak uh, through Brandon, Father? Um, we're thankful for just you, Lord. Um, would you be present with us today? We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. You guys are in for a treat today. I uh, became a grandfather this week, and so... Uh, I think that imbues me with some kind of extra wisdom, so hopefully, hopefully that'll uh, turn out to be the case. I'm counting on it. So um, this morning, we're continuing our series through the book of Genesis, and for the past few weeks, uh, we've kind of been in the story of the life of Jacob, and uh, this story uh, began when he was born, like most of our stories. Uh, he had a twin brother. Esau, and from the moment of birth, there was kind of this 
enmity and contention between these two brothers. And their parents didn't make it any better. Isaac and Rebecca, they each had a favorite of the twins. And uh, this dysfunction within their family kind of got worse and worse. And it all culminated in this colossal mess that was created when uh, Isaac decided to give a special blessing uh, to Esau. And, and this was despite the fact that God had made it clear that he had chosen Jacob as, uh, his, as the guy who's uh, going to take his covenant promises forward. So uh, Re- Rebecca, hearing of uh, Isaac's plans, uh, devised a scheme and Jacob deceived uh, his father and uh, stole his brother's uh, blessing. And when Esau heard of it, he was pretty upset about it. And uh, in fact, he was enraged and uh, vowed that he would murder his brother Jacob. So Jacob fled and went off to live with his uncle Laban until such a time that Esau's uh, anger kind of abated. Now, while he lived with Uncle Laban, uh, Jacob kind of got a dose of his own medicine. Uh, he kept getting deceived uh, over and over, and he kind of wound up with a dysfunctional family of his own. You see, he married two sisters, and there was kind of enmity and strife between them, a lot of jealousy. And uh, this did result in a lot of kids, which, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, they'll go on to be of the tribes of Israel, and we'll see how that turns out. So through it all, though, God has been very faithful to Jacob, his chosen man, uh, to become the father of all Israel. And despite Jacob's missteps and his misadventures, he's, he's prospered. Uh, he's become a leader of this great family of people, and that's where we're kind of coming in today in our story. Uh, Jacob has finally broken free of Uncle Laban and all of his schemes, and he's made peace with him. And now he's being obedient to God who is telling him that he needs to return back home to the promised land so that he can be made into a great nation. And there's only one snag in this plan, right? Esau. See, he still seems like maybe he's a little bit ticked off. And I think that uh, Jacob wants to be obedient to God and his calling in his life, but it really is looking like the situation he's going into is impossible. It's been my experience that, that God doesn't call us to a path or a life that is uh, easy and comfortable. Most often he calls his people to do what seems impossible. And this is because God wants us to be people of faith. And it doesn't require any faith for us to simply do the things that we know that we can do in our own strength. So to truly follow Jesus, it requires faith. God is asking us to take risks that seem like they might cost us everything. He wants us to do what is right when it would be easier for us to do what is wrong. He wants us to live out the words of Romans 12.1, that that we would present our bodies to him as living sacrifices, as an act of spiritual worship to him. 
Now, uh, the church that planted New City uh, Perimeter Church, they have a motto. It's this. It's attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to fail lest he be in it. And you've got to have a motto like that if you're going to be a church that plants churches. You know, I love Ryan and Megan to death. I really do. And as long as they keep pointing us to Jesus, like, I'll follow you guys to Mordor and back. I'm with you guys. But I'm telling you, there's no way that these two kids plant a church, right? Unless God's hand is on them. When I, when I was 40 years old, God said, hey, it's time for you to go into the ministry. And I thought to myself, uh, it's, too, it's too late for that. I don't have a college degree, kind of burned out on my first career, and all I really know how to do is how to get addicts into circles and talking to each other, and nobody pays you to do that. But I said, hey, God, I'll, I'll go wherever you want to send me, but no seminary is going to take me, and even if they did, I can't afford it. It was impossible, but God wanted me right here right now. I think about last week, uh, Tana was up here on, on the stage, and she was talking about her calling to bring the gospel to the film industry. And, and you know what? I bet Tana is great at her job. I don't really know exactly what she does, um, but I know Tana, and I bet you that she can get it done. I bet you she does it with excellence. But, it, but it, it, the idea that, you know, we're going to get those heathens you know, in the movie industry to embrace Jesus, that's, that's impossible. That's how I know that God is in it. That's why I really, really believe that God is going to give Tana great success at what she's going for. What's that, what's that impossible thing that's in front of you? you know, when you read God's Word or like when you come and hear somebody preach a message and, and the Holy Spirit starts stirring inside of you? What, what's that thing that you know that you should be doing, but maybe it just feels like it's too much? I just, I couldn't do that. That's impossible for me to do in my own strength. Maybe it's something like, like giving up drinking or, or giving up uh, pornography or something like that. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's like telling somebody about Jesus. Maybe God has put somebody on your heart and wants want you to tell them about Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're trying to figure out like, man, how do, I, how do I become more generous with my money? Maybe you need to go to counseling. Maybe you need to tell your spouse that you both need to go to counseling. Maybe there's somebody who's done you wrong and, and you need to uh, confront them. Maybe you need to forgive someone. Maybe you need to ask someone to forgive you. Maybe there's a sin, a sin that you need to confess to God or, or to others. And maybe there's a life change, a new job, going back to school, picking a school, getting married, adopting a child, deciding to have a child, deciding to keep a child, starting a business, going into the ministry? What is that thing that comes to your mind right now 
when you think that is impossible. I could not do that. What would happen if you took a step of faith right now, today? What would happen if you did that? that? What is that fear that's rushing up inside of you right now when you think about it? That's what our passage today is about. It's about having faith in the face of that fear when we're marching towards the impossible. So what I want to do today is look at our text and see if we can't figure out what's happening with Jacob. And then we'll kind of examine, like, what did he do that was good? And what did he do that was not so good? And then we'll kind of discuss what that means for us and, and you know, how can we put that into practice in our own lives. So the first thing we should talk about is that Jacob uh, was with the God of angel armies. All right, so our passage begins with Jacob, you know, heading back home. And I'm sure this is a long journey. He's got a group of people with him. And I'm sure that what keeps running through his mind is, what's going to happen when I see Esau again? But it's good. Jacob is, is moving in the right direction. He's going where God has told him to go. And one day, they're setting up camp for the night, and he meets some angels of God. And we're not told how many angels there are, but he refers to them as a camp, right? This is an army of God's angels, and they are encamped right where Jacob and his people are setting up their own camp. This is amazing. And it's so amazing, Jacob's like, we got to name this place. Like something spectacular happened here. And so he decided to give it a formal name, Mahanim. Patrick and I practiced all week on how to pronounce that word. So um, it literally means two camps. Now, Jacob knew what angels of the Lord looked like, right? Because you remember, you know, years and years and years ago, he had this dream about angels going up and down the ladder to heaven. And, and I'm sure that this is what he was thinking about when he encountered these angels. And he's remembering the words that God spoke to him in that dream when he renewed the Abrahamic covenant with him. He said, uh, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. How amazing would it be for, for God to say that to us? What comfort that must have been for Jacob. And he knew that God was with him. And now he has like this added assurance, right, of, of seeing angels face to face. And in fact, we see like, it seems like it emboldens him, right? He said, oh, God's messengers are here. I have an idea. I'll send a messenger and let my brother know that I'm coming because clearly uh, God's favor is with me. I think that Jacob's message to his brother is a little bit telling, right? Like we see in this message that he's not the same Jacob who deceived his father and, and fled, right? He's done at least a little bit of growing. Uh, in his message, he tells, that, he tells his messenger uh, to refer to Esau as my Lord Esau and to refer to himself as 
your servant, Jacob. And then he, he tells the messenger, make sure that, that he knows that I'm wealthy now, that I'm not just, I'm not just coming back to mooch on the family. I, I'm bringing something to the table. I think that what Jacob was trying to do here in his own way was kind of make amends for the blessing that he stole from his brother before. He's trying to kind of flip things back around to the way they were before he left. Now, um, unfortunately, Esau doesn't really seem impressed by this, right? Like, uh, he has put an army together of 400 men, and he's coming to meet Jacob. Now, that, that seems like a pretty aggressive move, and I think that Jacob is pretty justified in assuming, like, uh-oh, this guy is coming, and he intends to kill me. And, and immediately, any boldness that Jacob had, knowing that the angel armies were by his side, that seems to have kind of evaporated, right? He divides his camp into two camps, into two parts, in kind of this kind of cowardly plan. Like, I'm going to take this group, and they'll hold off the army while the rest of us escape. But I think before we judge Jacob too harshly, you know, it kind of occurs to me that he's doing exactly what we tend to do. You see, we're in the same position because we have a promise from God that he will be with us. Jesus told us, remember, he said, go and make disciples, right? And then what does he say after that? He says, I will be with you always until the end of the age. And the apostle Paul reminds us uh, in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And Romans 8.31, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, those who were with Jacob in, in the two camps, right? Those who were with him, they, they, they were greater than any army that Esau could have ever mustered up. And yet Jacob cowered in fear. And don't we tend to do that exact same thing? See, we have our our Christian convictions. We know what it is that God wants us to do, but as soon as it seems like we might offend someone or we might anger someone or it might cost us something precious to us or it might cost us an important relationship, we back down. We cower in fear of man instead of being emboldened by our fear of God. We know that God is with us. We know that God has a plan for us. And we know that God is for us. And yet we behave as if we are all alone and there's no one who is looking out for us. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to tell you that like Americans, we don't experience real persecution. You know, we're not being imprisoned for going to church like, like in China. 
We're not being killed or tortured like in North Korea or in the Middle East. Our churches are not being oppressed like they are in Cuba. We, we, we enjoy this measure of uh, religious freedom in the United States. We really do. And, and man, that is a good thing. I think we should celebrate that. I think we should be grateful for that. But that does not mean that we're free from persecution. To live a bold Christian life in America, we face some very real negative consequences. You know, what we say and what we post online, that these things can cost us jobs. They can cause us to be like falsely accused of being hateful and bigoted when we're really trying to be loving and accepting. Sometimes people have had children taken away. Sometimes people have been censored or silenced. Sometimes people have lost a job because they shared their faith at work. I've seen marriages end when, when one person comes to faith and the other doesn't. We might lose friends. We might lose loved ones when we take a stand for Jesus and it can affect our popularity, right, at work or at school. I, I don't want to minimize these things. They're, they're real and, and they're painful and they can have long-lasting kind of negative effects on us. And, and I think it's entirely reasonable for us to, to hope and pray that these kind of things don't happen to us. But I think the problem is that in our culture, because we're so far removed from the, from the kind of the life-threatening kind of persecution, we get to be a little bit comfortable in our comfort. We get a little bit too comfortable with our freedom. We feel like we're right there. If we just make the right choices, we could live a life that is completely free of any kind of conflict or suffering. But Jesus, Jesus said that we're not going to have a conflict-free life if we follow him. In fact, he said the opposite. We see it in John 15. He says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you that a servant is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is what Jesus has called us to but here's the good news, right? The reality is that the same God who is with the Christians who are facing the firing squad, that same God is the one who is by our side as we experience kind of more everyday persecutions. And the reality is that even though God doesn't ordinarily let us kind of meet them face to face like Jacob did, the reality is his angels are with us. And even better than that, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us who strengthens us and encourages us and comforts us in our times of distress. But we kind of have to appropriate that power of the Holy Spirit. And, and how do we do that? 
Well, let's take a moment. Let's look at um, the things that Jacob did right and, and what he did wrong. So first we'll, we'll look at what Jacob did that was right. Now, hopefully when persecution or difficulties come our way, however minimal or severe they may be, uh, hopefully we'll do what Jacob got right in this situation. See, first, he did not back down, right? He didn't just turn around and run away, and that's good. He stood his ground. He, He remained obedient to what God had told him to do. And then he turned to the only source of strength and protection that he or we have, God himself. And he did that in a prayer. He initially panics, but at some point he comes to his sentence, his senses, and he stops, and, it, and this is the prayer. I'm going to read it again. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with their children. And you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Indeed, this is a good prayer, right? This is a good example of what Paul talks about in Philippians 4, 6, when he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then it also embodies what James wrote in James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's look at his prayer a little more closely. Uh, There's like three kind of parts of his prayer. Uh, the, The first part is adoration and gratitude. He begins by kind of gratefully acknowledging that God has been faithful to his forefathers and to himself. And when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he also started with adoration, didn't he? Hallowed be thy name. When we pray, we need, we need to begin by giving God our adoration and expressing our thanksgiving. See, gratitude and thanksgiving, they're, they're not about flattering God or buttering him up. It's not about like, hey, I'll say some nice things about God, and then he'll be more likely to give me what I need. I think God would kind of see through that, right? I think God would know that we're trying to manipulate him. E.M. Uh, e. Bounds wrote this great book called On Prayer, and, and he defines gratitude and thanksgiving. Uh, this is what he said. Gratitude is an inward emotion of the soul, involuntarily arising therein to God for mercies received. Thanksgiving is the voluntary expression of gratitude. Gratitude is felt in the heart. Thanksgiving is the expression of that inward feeling. So this is what Paul means when he says that that we should pray with thanksgiving. What he means is we should vocalize 
the gratitude that we, that we have and that we feel in our hearts. I think Jacob did that. It, it, he also uh, talked about humility and submission in his prayer. See, Jacob acknowledges his unworthiness and he reiterates his commitment to be obedient to God's revealed will. And Jesus models this in the Lord's Prayer as well, where, you know, the thy kingdom come, thy will be done part. We need to be humbly submitting ourselves to God's plan, not telling him what our plan is. But then there is supplication. And supplication is, it's where God has instructed us to ask him for things. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is not because God doesn't know what we need unless we tell him, but it's because just like it is with gratitude and with humility and submission, it helps us to see our proper place in relationship to the Almighty God. Jacob asked God specifically to protect him from from Esau, but then more generally, he asked God to keep his covenant promises. I think it's interesting that both of these things that Jacob is asking him for, right? These are things that God has, has of his own volition promised to do for Jacob. When we pray, we're, we're never giving new information, right? We're never, we're never informing the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God of the universe, Jesus uh, said this in Matthew 6, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So if prayer is not about flattering God and it's not about communicating to Him our needs, then why, why do we pray, Right? A.W. Pink said this, prayer is not designed for the furnishing of God with knowledge of what we need, but it's designed as a confession to him of our sense of need. John Calvin said that, that prayer was not so much for God's sake as it is for our own. He wills that his due be rendered to him, but the profit of this sacrifice also by which he is worshipped, returns to us. In other words, prayer is a kind of sacrificial worship of God. It's It's this sacrifice that we make to him, wherein we give him his due. His he's he's due adoration. He's due our humility and our gratitude and our thankfulness and our submission and our supplication. And it's God's will that he would be moved by prayer. And why does he do it that way? Because it strengthens our relationship with him. And it brings him glory. So prayer, that's the proper vehicle for appropriating the power of the Holy Spirit in those minute, in those moments when, when we find ourselves in distress, when we're marching towards the impossible. This is the part that Jacob got right, but unfortunately, he didn't stop there. So let's kind of look at what Jacob got wrong. So after his prayer, 
Jacob decides he's going to stay in Mahanaim name, for the night. But instead of waiting patiently on the Lord to keep his promises, he instead returns to his old sinful pattern, right? Trying to manipulate others for his own benefit. And so what he decides to do is take matters into his own hands and send a bribe to his brother, thinking like, maybe I can bribe him into letting me live. And, and this is a little bit different than his earlier message to his brother. See, now he's not just saying like, hey, I'm coming back and things are good. He's like, hey, I'm going to give you all this stuff. And, and he says, he, he's not, this is not an attempt to make amends. He says, I am, I am hoping to appease him. I am trying to buy him off. And I, I think there's a couple of things wrong with this posture. See, Jacob had acknowledged just a moment ago in his prayer, he acknowledged that all of this wealth was, was a blessing from God, right? And he's, he's aware that it's God's will that, that Jacob would be blessed, that Jacob would be blessed and through his offering or through his offspring, he would become a blessing to many, many other nations. And this coupled with Jacob's just repeated improper use of titles, referring to himself as servant and Esau as Lord. This kind of shows that he's just not really aligned with what God is trying to do. God's revealed will is that the older would serve the younger. Now, how he mistreated Esau and, and uh, did things that he shouldn't have done, that has to be addressed. It has to be confessed. Amends do need to be made, but not at the expense of God's plan for Jacob and for his people. Alan Ross, he wrote a book uh, on Genesis called Creation and Blessing. He, he said this, God's people can pray with confidence for deliverance from their enemies because of his promises to them. And they need not seek to appease their enemies by giving away God's blessings on them. So this kind of brings up the question, right? Like, why was Jacob so anxious? You know, if he had appropriated the power of the Holy Spirit through this prayer, you know, that, that verse in Philippians we read a, a moment ago, it, there's a second part to it. It says, you know, do not be anxious about anything, but, you know, bring prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And then it says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So where was this peace? Where was the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? Well, I think the fact that Jacob was willing to give away his blessing that he was willing to disrupt the order of things that God had decreed, I, I think we have to look at that and say, you know, I don't think Jacob was very close to God at this point in his life. 1 John 5 says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Church, we cannot expect our prayers to be effective 
or to experience that peace that comes with praying according to his will if we are not connected with God. Consider the words of Jesus in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. See, Jacob, he hadn't yet really become a part of the vine. He was not plugged into God, and so he didn't really believe God's promises. And we're the same way. We're the same way. When we neglect abiding in Jesus, we quickly lose that that confidence that we have towards him. Sure, we're still going to remember the promises that we've encountered in Scripture, but, but they feel limp and powerless. We know, that, we know that Jesus promises that the Father will provide for our every need, but we don't really believe it. And before long, we're back to our same old ways, right? We're trying to find and figure out solutions for ourselves. And like Jacob, we begin trying to take to we, we begin trying to gain the favor of those who stand against us by compromising on the things that we know are important to God. We forget that apart from Jesus we can do nothing. Jacob thought that he could buy off Esau with gifts and flattery. Friends, this this just doesn't work, right? No one that you have to bribe is really truly your friend. And, and there's no way that, they're, that they have respect for you. It just doesn't work. And if they're acting like your friend, it's only because they think they're going to be able to get more out of you. And you know what? This approach doesn't work with God either. We cannot buy God's love. We cannot earn his respect or with flattery or fancy words or good deeds or promises of obedience. In fact, Scripture is pretty clear, right? We can only love God because He first loved us. Do you understand what that means? It means that that He loved us so much so that, that Jesus died for us on a cross, even while we were still sinners Romans tells us that we were enemies of God, deserving of his wrath, and yet he died for us to pay the penalty for our sin. Not because we're good people who do good things for him, but simply because he loves us. And if we abide in him and and he in us, then we will bear much fruit. And then when we pray, it will be effective because we'll be aligned with his will. And after we pray, we will experience that wonderful fruit of peace that surpasses understanding. And church, that's what we need 
if we're going to keep faith in the face of distress or persecution or disease or conflict or whatever we are marching towards that is impossible. This is what we need when we realize that God always is going to call us to the impossible. And when that fear and that anxiety wells up in us, when it rushes up, when we think about being obedient to God's calling in our lives. Church, this is my challenge to you this week. Write down one of those impossible things that you know God has called you to. And then devote yourself this week to abiding in Him. Be faithful to it. How do you do that? How do you abide in Him? Real quick, just look at Jesus' example. Mark 1.35, it says that Jesus did this. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this, but abiding in him means deliberately setting aside time to be with him. Jesus himself, right? Jesus himself, God in the flesh, he felt it was necessary to disrupt his regular routine of life and get away somewhere quiet and be with the Father. And if Jesus needed it, then you know that we need it even so much more. This is the example that he set for us. And, and church, until you get this down, until this becomes like your daily habit, you're going to continue to struggle with sin. And you're going to continue to struggle with fear and with anxiety. And you're going to continue to have weak and ineffective prayers. And you're not going to experience the peace that comes from being with him. But hey, when this becomes a part of your kind of regular way of life, uh, spending time with Jesus every day, you will be flourishing on the vine. Flourishing. You'll be experiencing, no matter what comes your way, the worst of circumstances could come, and you will still have that peace that surpasses all understanding. That's my prayer for you this morning, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your servant Jacob and his life and the legacy and the story that he left behind, the good and the bad. Lord, we thank you that you wrote it down and shared it with us. And Lord, I pray that the words, not my words, but your words from your scripture would penetrate our hearts and our minds this morning, that when we leave here and get distracted by other things, that your spirit would be speaking to us and turning us back to you, keeping us grafted into the vine, and letting us feel the power and presence and comfort of your wonderful Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. 
If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.